Every company that has a large set of customers has a large set of data, whether that company is 5 years old or 50 years old. That data is valuable whether you're an insurance company, a soft drink manufacturer, or a ride-sharing company. All of these large companies know that their data is valuable, but some of them are not sure how to standardize the access patterns of that data or how to build a culture around data. The larger the company is, the more data is spread throughout the company, and the more heterogeneous the data sources are. Older companies often have older pieces of data infrastructure, and it might not be well-documented. It is hard to make data-driven decisions when an organization cannot effectively query their own data. For example, consider a simple question about marketing. An insurance company wants to know how their spending on TV advertising correlates with sales in California over the last 25 years. Imagine that question. How do you correlate marketing at an insurance company through TV advertising with sales in California? Historically, you might have just used your gut intuition, but today we should be able to do some kind of data-driven analysis. And we do try to do data-driven analysis. Perhaps the VP of marketing sends an email to a business analyst within the company and asks for a historical report of marketing data. Then the business analyst can know how to present the data with a business intelligence tool. But the analyst first needs to ask a data scientist how to make that query. The data scientist needs to ask the data engineer where to find these records in a large Hadoop distributed file system cluster. And the data engineer might have just joined the company last week and might not have any idea where anything is. These are the problems of data ops. Similarly to DevOps, data ops is the recognition that a set of problems have crept into organizations over time and slowed down productivity around data. The story of the DevOps movement is that old infrastructure, lack of testing, and complicated monolithic backends slowed down everyone in an old, big enterprise. The slow pace of change destroys morale and erodes trust. The DevOps movement is about revamping organizations through tooling and organizational behavior. We've covered this in lots of episodes, such as in a great episode with Gene Kim, who wrote The Phoenix Project. When an organization wants to reinvent itself with DevOps, it often begins with testing and continuous delivery. Data Ops encourages data-driven organizations to begin with a similar practice of testing their data pipelines to build trust and evolve best practices. There are other similarities between Data Ops and DevOps, such as continuous delivery and the breaking down of silos between different organizational roles. Chris Berg joins the show to talk about the data problems encountered by large companies and the practices of Data Ops, as well as his own company, Data Kitchen which builds tools to help companies move towards more productive data practices. Chris Berg, you are the founder of Data Kitchen. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. Data analysts and data engineers are often working to answer requests of higher level business people like a VP of marketing or somebody else that's higher up in the organization. And you often get a waterfall down of a higher level business request, like somebody at Uber might say, I want to know how many rides took place on July 4th. And then that translates into work at, at the data analyst level, perhaps the data engineering level. What are the challenges in the interactions between these different layers of people, the higher level business person, the data engineer, 
and the data team? There's kind of t- two categories of challenges. So, so one is, and so I, I have a software engineering background and a data science and, and AI background. So I'm going to kind of bounce back and forth between those perspectives. So the first challenge, I think, is that, like you said, data analytics is really a kind of a search and find, maybe a science, maybe it's a random walk through. You have all these data sets and all these ways to visualize or segment or group or run algorithms on, and you're really searching for a needle in a haystack and then trying to take that needle in a haystack and, and institutionalize it in some some process. And so that's really the the challenge is both finding it. And there's just a lot of great tools and methods to sift and winnow data. And so that's one challenge. And then the second is, is once you have that insight, how do you actually turn that into kind of a low cost, high quality, ongoing deliverable? And so those are two from a you know, the, there's a cousin team to a software engineering team. Sometimes it's under a chief data officer or a chief analytic officer or a head of data science. And there's there's different roles in that team, like you suggested, data engineers, data scientists, people who do visualization. And so, you know, I think those those teams have a lot to learn from from software and software engineering. But they also have just their, their unique set of challenges that, you know, that, that's something that we're trying to do as a company and, and I'd like to talk about today. There are different tools that each of these different organizational players are putting into practice. So at the VP of marketing level, they're maybe using Tableau or Excel or other visualization tools. The data engineer is maybe using Airflow and Redshift and a variety of other things. Data analysts and data scientists are using different things. What's the pipeline of these different tools and how do they connect to one another? How are they sharing data between the different sections of the pipeline? Well, it's complicated, right? Because there's, you know, the person at the end of it, the person who's receiving value, and maybe it's a customer on your website, or maybe it's a business user, they, they don't care about the tool chain behind it, right? That They just want the insight, and they want to trust that the data is right. And so you've got this diverse set of tools. And there's, you know, if you look at the people who do visualization, there's like 50 companies, Tableau's the, the most famous. People who do data science, there's R and Python, and then a whole bunch of other people do it. And then you know, there's 50 companies that do data engineering and ETL. And there's a complicated tool chain out there that, that people use. And one of the challenges that your business customer sees is they don't see the tool chain and they don't see that some things are, there's always a discontinuity, even when you're building software or building analytics, some things are easy and some things are hard. And if you look at it from the perspective of your customer, they, they can't see that discontinuity. They can see, oh, I want to have a segmentation or oh, I, I want to know more about my customer. So... That's really the, the challenge. So how do you uh, have all those tools? And my perspective on it is I worked at a company before I founded Data Kitchen, and we tried to do everything in analytics, data engineering, data science, visualization, and one metadata-driven platform. And you know, it started in 2005, and maybe I was uh, we were all kind of deluded at it, but you know, sort of pour in metadata, pour in actual data, and get out this challenge, right? Because as a technologist, you kind of see what happens behind the curtain. And you see that some things take long and some things take short and there's these weird discontinuities. And so when you talk to a business user, they don't see those discontinuities. They just sort of expect things to, to be right 
translate into into work. And there's a sort of diversity of tools uh, that each individual contributor uses in analytics. And, you know, there's 50 different BI tools, 50 different data science tools or tools to make data science easier and probably 100 different tools to transform data and do something with it. And everyone loves their tools. And I had a hard lesson starting in 2005 at my previous company. We tried to build sort of the the tool that did everything in, in analytics, sort of pour in metadata and get out visualizations and data transforms and some models. And, you know, that sort of got 80% there. And then you climbed the asymptotic wall of hardness and we ended up putting bags on the side. It just didn't work, right? And so it, it worked partly. And so I, I fundamentally believe that people who do the work love their tools and the people who receive the work first of all, have a hard time knowing what they want. And then once they get what they want, they don't ever want it to break and want to have supreme confidence in the mm. results. So I think this gets us closer to the discussion of that data ops term that you have, I've heard you talk about in other places and also on some videos. So I think DevOps is a, is a widely used term. And I think that what DevOps was trying to encapsulate or is trying to encapsulate is that there's a variety of practices that are all connected to one another. And it's hard to to say exactly how they are connected, but there is containerization. There's the rise of continuous delivery. There's the rise of people being able to communicate more fluidly in Slack channels, which leads to breaking down communication silos more easily, which is why development and operations, these two terms that used to be discrete, got sandwiched together where you now have developers and operations teams that can work more synergistically. They can they can overlap with one another. And my intuition is you're kind of saying the same thing with data ops, where data ops is, is a representation of, uh, you're trying to break down some of the silos, you're trying to make some of the tools play more nicely together, you're trying to let some of the communication barriers between different sections in this data pipeline break down a little bit. Help me get an intuition for what you're trying to get at with data ops. Oh, that's really good, actually. <laughs> you said it very well. At a really high level, so I, you know, I've had part of my career being in, in software engineering and part of my career being in, in, in the data and analytics world. And they're kind of cousins to each other, but they're, they're different planets in a lot of ways. And all those terms you said about agile and DevOps and infrastructure as code and getting development and operations together and all those even things like like source control and branching there's very few people actually in the analytics world and it's increasing who are familiar with those terms and for the last five years we've been going out and kind of evangelizing these sort of you know devopsy agile lean manufacturing statistical process control based ideas in conferences and you know five years ago I'd raise my hand and ask who knew about source control and to people who've been in the analytics field for anywhere from two two years to 25 years, and a couple percent knew what they were. And in general, the software world and the data and analytics world, they're like each other, but the, but they're different. And so there's this different culture and different attitude about uh, how people work. It's kind of similar to when I was a software engineer in the 90s. And a lot of you had teams that were stuck in kind of this 
mode of either being heroes where they were just, you know, I wrote all the code. I'm going to maintain the code. I wrote some tests, maybe not. And if something breaks, I'm going to go run and fix it because, you know, I want to look awesome. Or they get in the other way where they're so afraid to do things. They have these giant long waterfall processes and manual QA things, and it takes them six months to ship everything. And I think the what the software industry is is learning and continually learning is that at the highest level, it's pretty hard to know what your customer wants. And writing, I've done the role of product manager, I've managed product management teams and writing long requirements documents, reviewing those with customers. It's just so much easier to put something in a customer's hands and get their reaction to it and then iterate and prove. And so that is, a, I think, just a, a much better way to work for a lot of reasons. And some people call it agile. Some people call it DevOps. They're like, you know, in the tech world, there's just a bunch of terms for different things. But to me, it's, it's about how to force feedback into your team and not how to get caught in either fear or heroism on how they work. And so we're trying to bring those ideas to that are based in software, but also based even before that in, you know, I grew up in the 80s in Wisconsin and actually Milwaukee, Wisconsin had in the early 80s had its industry sort of taken out. 50,000 jobs were lost in the early 80s in Wisconsin, mainly from Japanese imports because they were making better cars, better small engines because they had adopted ideas of just-in-time inventory, statistical process control, and this crazy guy Deming who had like, you know, looks like a his ideas about how you should run a factory floor automation and how you could produce things of high quality are really, I think, important. And I took those to heart kind of about 15 years ago. And I think when you do analytics, you're also in a lot of ways running a, a factory floor. And so you've got all those. We have a perspective on that in, in data ops. Okay. So you hear this with the DevOps people as well, where they talk about the connection between lean manufacturing and the DevOps movement and kind of some of the procedural, some of the relationship management aspects of a productive assembly line or a productive uh, industrial team working together. How does that relate to DevOps and how does it relate to data ops? Yeah. So I look at it from a guy who's, who's, who's done a lot of coding in my life and a guy who's managed a lot of people who've done coding and technical work. And so it's in some ways, it's a different challenge when you have a bunch of people. And, and one of the first things I faced as a manager was the urge to blame. Like something goes wrong and it's really easy as a manager to throw one of your employees under a bus and say it's their fault. And one of the key lessons of Deming is it's actually rarely someone's fault. It's usually the process that person is working in. That's the fault. That's the root cause of the fault. And since you're the manager, you own the process that people work in. So that means when things go wrong, it's almost always your fault, which kind of sucks, honestly, to, to live with as a manager. But it's actually true. Very rarely do people actually screw you over. Do people actually fail? A lot of times it's you, you haven't put people in a set of procedures and processes to actually work together or to continuously improve upon what's there. And so that kind of shift in mindset 
I think is true in Deming. It's true in kind of lean manufacturing. It's true in, in, in agile and DevOps. And now it's true in data ops. Don't blame your employees. You know, it's, it's usually your fault as a manager that you haven't put them in a position to succeed. And so how do you as a manager put your, your team in a position to succeed? You know, I, I think what if you look at the agile manifesto it was about hyper empowered individuals using the tools that they love giving them impact in the customer having small teams having small deliverable cycle times in which they can deliver and then what that's great a lot of people started to do things like kanban and and agile scrum and then they realized man it's just i still got to test all this stuff i still got to deploy all this stuff and what if i start to automate all that and that actually, the combination of Agile and DevOps, I think really, and in some ways, DevOps is superseded the, the way Agile people do DevOps now. And what they mean is I, you know, I run Scrum, I have short cycle times, but I also automate my deployments. I do continuous integration. I do infrastructure as code. And so those similar set of ideas that came from industrial process control that sort of, in my mind, passed through software engineering, we're trying as a company to bring those into how people do data science or or data engineering or even data visualization. Okay, let's walk through some of those specific ideas. DevOps, for example, when I talked to people in the DevOps movement, there was a while ago where I did a ton of these shows because the DevOps movement was really heating up with Gene Kim and Phoenix Project and you know, they had these huge insurance companies, for example, that were trying to figure out how to, you know, they found the insurance companies and the, you know, oil analytics companies all found themselves in a situation where all of a sudden we're a software company and we didn't expect it. And so then, you know, they have these huge monolithic applications and these uh, non-software oriented teams where, you know, they wake up one day and they're a software company. They're now a software company that produces insurance rather than an insurance company that happens to have some software in the back office. And the thing that the DevOps people always seem to emphasize is getting testing in place because the testing is the backbone of the continuous delivery model because if you have testing in place over some scope of software, then you can start to do more rapid deployments within that scope of software because then people have trust. If you have a, if you have a well-tested piece of software, then you can push out changes more aggressively and have those changes be run through automated tests and then you feel comfortable deploying it to production or at least some subset of production. Now with data ops, more it is interesting cuz you know, machine learning and data science models and things that are more yeah, a wider granularity of is it working or not. These things are are becoming more and more of our application development and they seem like they're harder to test because of that that wider array of granularity like if if uber has a new pricing model that they want to deploy is it working or not well i mean we can create some bounds checks that can test some really naive things but there's going to be so many edge cases that a machine learning model could spit out for example that it's it's sort of hard to produce a robust set of tests for a machine learning model but that's not to throw testing you know in the garbage at all with with the data ops movement tell me about how testing should fit into data ops and what kinds of tests are we talking about what kinds of and what kinds of applications because obviously you know I think we're, we're kind of like data applications. There's a wide array of data applications. There's dashboards, there's machine learning models, there's batch jobs that run every night and deliver you a report. So there's obviously a wide array of things and testing will apply some to more to some than to others. But 
testing really does seem like a cornerstone of what you're trying to go for with data ops. So tell me more about your vision for testing. Yeah, those are all, all good points. And kind of to, to back it up, so where companies are today, and you know, we talk with large insurance companies, instead of trying to be a software company, they're now trying to, what Gartner says, be a data-driven organization and get value from their data, monetize their data. And so they're, they're trying to see themselves as a, you know, as a Facebook or a Google, not in the sense that they write code, but in the sense that they, they've got this stream of data that they're trying to turn into value. And so that is what the chief data officers, chief analytic officers uh, talk about. And so in order to do that, they have in the world of analytics, I, I believe similarly to DevOps, that, that testing is important and tests have a different, I do believe that you can test everything, including predictive models and tests have kind of a dual duality in how people run. So that there's this manufacturing line where, where if you imagine data is on the left and a bunch of tools glom onto that data that, that, you know, maybe it's airflow that does the data organization. Maybe you've got a, a Python model running. Maybe it's showing up in, in Tableau and, and there's sort of manufacturing happening and data is flowing in from the left and going out on the right. Maybe it streams in, maybe it's done in a batch cycle of a day or an hour, but really you have this kind of river of data flowing through your systems and tools acting upon that data. And so you have this, whether you call them tests or operational testing or operational monitoring, you have to understand your factory floor as it's running. And those testing and what we, you know, what I would think of as, as, as from a software background as tests is, is incredibly important there. And it's, it's just amazing to me how many companies don't have any tests or monitors in there. They just change some code, they have some people look at it, and then they throw it up, either because they're heroes or because they haven't talked to it. And we try to guide people to think about, you know, you are running a factory floor. And actually, you should, if you want to do statistical process control, you should writing tests and those tests are actually sensors or monitors. And that's actually a data set that you can use to get very analytic about your process. Because if you look at Toyota's assembly line, they have a huge amount of analytics that they pour off of in terms of yield, in terms of error rates that can help you improve. And even in a simple case, I've managed data engineers who at first they would just do these long builds. Maybe this is in sort of the mid 2000s, take 12 hours to build a database. And they would sort of hope that everything would work out. And after 12 hours, they'd oh, get an error. And then they have to go back, change four lines of SQLs and rebuild the whole thing again. Wouldn't it be smart to actually, in an hour in, write a test to that build to see if something's wrong? And that way you can tell and shorten your cycle time to find the errors. And so I think testing from a production standpoint is, is really important and it's a really source of value. And you can test anything because it's all code. I mean, a predictive model's code, you know, a visualization, Maybe it's configuration, but you can put Python and if then else is in a Tableau model and certainly the directed graph or SQL that's that's running or ETL code. It's all it's all code. And so you need to be able to, while it's running, test it. And so that's first idea is that tests or operational monitoring are, are really important. You should do it. It should be 20% of your code base. So, but that is only good because it helps you prove that you aren't delivering erroneous data or uh, reducing your errors in front of your customer. Because, uh, you know, in analytics at the highest level, what we're trying to solve is have people use data to make decisions instead of intuition. And it's really easy for people to dismiss the work that a team does to produce data, produce analytics 
analytics and just say, ah, you know, my gut says this. I know the data might say this, but I think your data is wrong because you had this error last week. And so you need to run an assembly line of data with all your tools that's instrumented for with a lot of tests so you can get your customers to believe what the data says. That's like the first order of business. So those tests, is that like a test data set? Like if I want to test my new factory floor monitoring system, it seems like my testing would actually be a data set where I would have a data set that would include outliers of certain aspects of behavior. And then I would have, I guess, well, I guess it would be one part data set and then one part, some framework around that data set that determines, okay, did the monitoring system actually detect that there was an outlier here? Yes, it's green. And and then, you know, we, con- we confirm that and then we move the model forward along the, the production pipeline or... Yeah, the, the tests kind of have, there's this duality to testing in, in analytics. In one case, the data's changing, right? Because you're getting new data sets. And, and is that, if you've ever done analytics, your suppliers of data always give you crap. There's always errors. You're always going to have to go and do data deep dives. You want to find problems in data sooner rather than later. Those things are, if you've ever delivered analytics, are pretty standard. And the tests help you do that. And the tests help you prove that as the data is flowing through the system, that your code's working. And so in one sense, the data is changing, but the code and the tests are fixed. And that helps you produce a accurate deliverable for your customer to believe to do analytics. Now, the other challenge is at the same time, you've got your Toyota factory floor humming and producing those tests are producing analytics for you to to manage. Those tests themselves, you should be able to fix the data and then change the code to actually be able to then help deploy new code in production and, and change the factory floor at the same time. And so, you know, there's this kind of dual nature to it, right? The river of data changing data and the tests are monitoring it. And then you take a sample, maybe a sample of the data, a subset of the data, the whole data set, because sometimes, you know, a couple of terabytes of data isn't that big. And you use that to do regression testing, feature testing, performance testing on your code. And really the tests... In a lot of cases, you can reuse a lot of the tests. Some, some tests are unique to one environment versus the other. But that's where, conceptually, you just what we're trying to do with data ops is get people to think that way. Testing is important. Automated testing is important. Don't do it manually. And have, when you're actually going at, and have those tests are useful because, hey, if you change code, it's regression feature automation. It's just like the stuff we do in software engineering. But you know what? Those same tests, they should monitor your system so no bad data gets by and, and then your business customer doesn't think you're an idiot and trust their gut, not, not what your data team says. Okay, so this is reflective of DevOps once again, because you're not prescriptively saying you need to do testing in this way. It's more like it's proscriptive. It's it's don't do testing in the way where you like have a new piece of software and then you like eyeball it for a little while. I mean, in some cases you like you eyeballing it is helpful or complementary to automated testing, but get some automation in place because the more you try to automate things, the better a sense you will get for what should be automated. I mean, you may write some automated tests and you're like, okay, that was not super helpful for me. But it taught me how to autom- how to do automation, how to put 
some framework around my data deployment pipeline, whether that's a, a batch job or a like a monitoring dashboard that I want to have faith in, or this you know safety system that I'm writing for my factory floor, rather than just having these models being deployed willy-nilly and eyeballing it, and then nobody trusts the system, and there's just a low level of trust, and that low level of trust permeates to the whole engineering organization, I'm sure there are places where, where that happens. And I think testing probably reduces some of that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's kind of these two pipelines going on, as you mentioned. One is the orchestration of all the pieces and when you're running your factory. And that's one kind of pipeline or directed graph. And then you've got the other kind of pipeline going perpendicular to that, which is kind of the deployment of new code into it. And so you've got to do sort of you should be able to do both things simultaneously. And like a characteristic of a test on the top part of the T where you're just sort of uh, orchestrating all the pieces to manage production is I've gotten a file that's gotten a million rows and it's come to me every day and it's got about a million rows. And so today I got a file that's got 100,000 rows. Is that an error? Is that a warning? So you should notice it, right? Because your customer may end up saying, what's wrong? I didn't, all of a sudden, it'll show up in the Tableau dashboard. It'll show up in some weirdness in the predictive model because instead of a million rows, you got 100,000 rows. And they'll notice it and call you up and say, what's wrong? And then you're, as a data team, you're like, oh, wow, we didn't notice that. It's much better to notice it, have a flag that says this is statistically out of bounds and do a number of things. Reject it because it's wrong. Reject the data source. Maybe it's uh, patch the data because you, with yesterday's data or just put a release note to your customer saying we noticed that this data dropped. Could you help us figure out why this is? And all those things make you a much better partner to your business person by noticing. And that's captured by a test. It's captured by statistical process control. And really what you're testing on the top part of the T is is variability in data. And so you could take that same test that has 100,000 rows, and there's further things that you could do with that that 100,000 or a million rows. You could be making a dimension and a fact table. You could be running a segmentation model that's supposed to have uh, 10 segments off that, that dimension. And so if you take the, and fix the data set saying, okay, I've got my regression data set that I use for development, I should be getting 10 segments out of my predictive model. And, you know, my dimension should have on the order of 50,000 items in it. And all of a sudden you don't because you're working in your development box. That's an error. And why is that? Well, maybe it's because the model needs tweaking. Maybe it's because somebody messed up the SQL code. But that's also a use of that same test to help you, when the data is fixed, help you understand that you've broken some code. Because it's very it, the, the ideas are really similar, right? You want to be able to have one of the tests is, can you take someone who's two years out of college and can they make a change to your complicated data system and deploy it into production? And you're not going to worry about it. And you're not going to have a change review board or you're going to, you know, you should have things like code reviews. But a lot of companies, they, they put this huge amount of process in an analytics. And it literally, there's insurance companies we work with. It literally takes them six months to update the code in their data warehouse. And that's just like, that's insane because they're so afraid of making data errors, because in order to do that six months, they've got to have the people who know the system, know all the history, have it, the whole system in their head, give it their blessing. And that all comes from a lack of automation, both in terms of testing automation, deployment automation, regression testing, and you know the stuff that the more refined word of DevOps talks about. Could, can you 
have your development environment be reflective of your production environment in terms of servers, infrastructures, libraries, et cetera. That's chilling to think about the six-month turnaround time for a code change at a large, like kind of non-historically technology company, like like a, a large insurance company. It doesn't really surprise me. Can you tell me more about your experiences with customers? I mean, we could talk a lot about data ops. I find this this whole conversation topic very interesting and the, and the ideas of data ops, like version control and the same things in DevOps, containerization, infrastructure as code, etc. But take me inside the world of the customer because you're actually working with some of these companies that are trying to implement data ops, specifically through your tooling that you've built, Data Kitchen. Tell me about the problems that they're encountering and how specifically they are using Data Kitchen, and and I don't say that like as like give me the pitch, but I think circuitously this will be a give me the pitch because I want to understand how do you address the problems that they're having. I think the problems you're addressing are probably other also problems that a large startup like Airbnb or Uber they're probably having problems in their data infrastructure that is not exactly the same as the giant insurance company, but probably reflective of some of the same challenges. So tell me about the customer landscape and the challenges they're having today. Yeah. So in order to do that, I want to just talk a little bit. So we're a bootstrap company. We're about $4 million in revenue. We've been around for about five years, and we're going to continue to bootstrap. And one of the reasons is that to make a change in an organization, that six months to change a data warehouse, you've got to Partly, it's like the Phoenix Project. You've got to change people's mindset a bit about how they work. And so in a lot of organizations, there is a partitioning of work. I do. You think of this value chain of putting data in a database, having some schema, having a model and a visualization, but there may be 10 different roles, a dozen different roles in there between the person who does the schema design, the person who does the ETL, the person who does the QA, the person who does the visualization, the manager of them, the person who writes the requirements. And there's this giant team of people who all have kind of narrow skills. And organizations tend to have, want to have that the bigger they get, right? Because the the narrower skills they, they have, it's it's easier to hire people who have one specific skills than someone can do, can do everything. But that is a, a blocker, both in terms of people's fear of someone else taking over my job, but also the coordination cost of having to have all those people work together. And so that's a barrier culturally and how to coordinate the team. And the B2C consumer companies, I think, are, are honestly, they're just better at it because they're younger companies and, and companies like Spotify have, have built this idea of agile and hyper-empowered employees kind of into their into their DNA. And so that's something that I think people have, as consumer companies, I think are better at than more traditional companies. But traditional companies have, you know, from a, a business owner, they, you know, they got money and they've got challenges. And it, it kind of sucks to be, I put myself in the place of those people. And it actually kind of sucks to work there, right? That you're, you're kind of a smart person, you're trying to do what's right for the company, you've worked for the company for 10 years, and you're caught in a process that at the end of the day, having a half a page of code takes you six months to get into production. It makes you want to smack your head and quit and run away. But these are very valuable companies that contribute to our economy. And these people are smart people, and they, they want to find a better way. And so I see it as, in a lot of ways, the reason I'm doing this company in my 50s is these people are, are suffering in some ways. And they suffer because they're in a managerial environment that's tough 
And a lot of companies are trying to be agile. They do sort of fake agile, even in the data side. They'll they'll have everyone do agile, some form of agile training. They'll make a special room with posters in and cool monitors. And they'll say, we're doing agile, right? And it's nice, right? They're doing agile, but they're really doing agile or fake agile where it's dev, you know, dev sprint, dev sprint, dev sprint, QA sprint, QA sprint. And it's not really quite there yet. And I think one of the reasons is, is the same reason that what happened in, in software is, yeah, you can do agile, but you really needed DevOps, deployment automation, test automation, infrastructure as code, those DevOps tools to really make Agile sing. And I think the same thing is happening, it will happen in data and analytic teams, whether they're, you know, data scientists or data engineers, they need some tooling to help them, you know, and that's what we're trying to do is say, look, you got to get some tools to help you here. You can't just, it's necessary to do Scrum and Kanban or whatever flavor you want of, of, and what, of how to organize your team, but the sufficiency comes from a technical environment that enables you to do it. And like you said, the linchpin of that technical environment is having a a huge amount of automated tasks that both function to monitor the, the data flowing through your system and to help you ensure sure that you don't break things when you deploy it into production. You know, and they have tools, but the tools that oftentimes the workflows that they build around are these ancestral, um, you know, the really old pieces of software, and then it gets tied into the organization. And I agree with everything you said. You know, I have gone to a number of conferences in the Kubernetes space, and they're making the same kinds of sales to these organizations, the insurance companies and so on, more from the infrastructure and just software application deployment and management space, and also how do we get these companies into the cloud? Now that they see the potential for the cloud, what is their road to the cloud? Yeah, in the data world, they've got this, I'm running something in-house, and then my CIO has said, well, we're moving to the cloud and we're doing Agile. And from a data team, data and analytics team, they're like, oh my God, what, what, how, how do I do that? How do I, you know, it's taking me months to, to make a change to my data warehouse. Now you're asking me to, to move it to the cloud and start making changes to it on a weekly or even daily basis. And so that's a challenge that a lot of companies are facing because they know that their business customer is getting used to, it's the sort of Amazon model. Like one of our customers who runs a data and analytic team his perspective is I'm competing with Amazon and not because Amazon is has a data warehouse in the cloud or Redshift or not because Amazon is going to get into his business, which happens to be sort of uh, healthcare. It's because it's the perception of his business customer that they can go click on a screen and get a box shipped to them ne- the next day. And he feels like he needs next day insight to his business customers. And so he needs to be able to deliver new changes, new models, new visualizations very rapidly and high quality to his customer. And that's the world he lives in. He lives in an Amazon fat rapid response world. And so how do we get our teams of people to do that? And uh, there's whether it's an ancient tool that is like Informatica or ETL or it's a modern tool, it's not about the tool, honestly. And, and something I find frustrating in vendor pitches is this sort of way that they want you to trust that if you just do it in my tool, everything will be all right. And it really pisses me off going to conferences because the tools create code and that run in one of their engines or run in a, a VM, right? That's it. It's code. So how you manage that code, how you test that code, how you deploy that code isn't solved by buying a $3 million cloud era license and all the tools that they've aggregated. It isn't, it isn't, and every vendor is trying to go, you know, the BI vendors are trying to do data science, the data science are trying to do data engineering and deployment, the, you know, that they're all, everyone 
these front end tools is trying to say, I do everything. And if you standardize on my tool, uh, everything will be great. And that's just such BS. It's a multi-tool world. And, and people are productive and can express their ideas in their tool of choice. And I don't ever want to get between an R and Python discussion with a data scientist or a Tableau and click discussion in BI, and let alone trying to say if someone loves, loves Airflow or, or someone is standardized on Informatica. People just love their tools. And it's, you should, the tools don't solve the problem. It's how you organize the people and the tools to do their work. It's your manager's problem. And as a manager, you need to sort of change your thinking of how you work with your team and, and you know, stop blaming your employees, stop living in hope that you go to a vendor and everything's going to be all right, and stop the stupid sort of field of dreams kind of way of doing things. And I, I, it really gets me frustrated when I see companies actually do spend $2 million on a Cloudera license and then start pouring in little data sets. And then it's a year before any customer sees any value of that. And that it's just like, that's an insane way to work. And then they no wonder why you read about data warehouse failures. Now you're starting to read about data lake and big data failures. And then now you're starting to read about data science failures. And all of it's because they're failing because they're not delivering value to their customers quickly. And it's not to say that you shouldn't short shift all the other stuff that goes with that are, aren't value, directly value driven, like architecture, design, data governance, documentation, training of your team, all that stuff. But you have to deliver in order to be successful in the world, you've got to deliver in short cycle times and you've got to have a mix of things that deliver value to the customer and deliver indirect value to the customer infrastructure, documentation, governance. And instead of the waterfall way of, OK, we're going to spend a year on all the stuff that doesn't deliver value to the customer and then magically everything's going to go. And it's a pattern I see in a lot of companies where they're they're spending a lot of money on vendors that they believe the tool is going to do it they get all the tools in house and then lo and behold the business user says i spent five million dollars on you guys in the last year and i haven't seen anything <laughs> and and then you know then they scramble and then you know hopefully they still have a job right and and sometimes they don't because the average tenure of a cdo is like two years now you've painted a bleak picture and i can imagine this actually i have no trouble imagining it like I'm a giant insurance company. I pay for a large vendor. You've named a few. <laughs> I can imagine a few others. The large vendor parachutes in with an army of consultants and a variety of expensive software with licenses. And they spend some time racking up additional consulting fees, hanging out at the insurance company, developing some workflows, giving some whiteboarding sessions, and then they leave. And a year later, nothing has really changed. It's not hard for me to imagine that. Can you contrast that with a happier path? So (laughs) maybe something like, I mean, you're a vendor. Data Kitchen is, is a piece of software, but I think your idea is a little more agnostic. Your idea is we're going to give you this tool and it's going to slot into your existing workflow and it's going to help you tack on additional workflows that do not disrupt your existing workflows. If I understand correctly. Yeah, it's a little. So that's why we've been, that's why we're bootstrapping, right? Because we're still trying to figure out exactly what the right way is to get organizations to move along this. And partly it's, it's just sort of me talking and talking to analysts and, and talking about this idea and getting the idea going in the world. But that's one part of it that we're trying to do. We're trying to be idea mavens, right? And the second part is working with customers. We're saying, don't, you've got tools that do data science and ETL and visualizations. We're going to work with those tools. Don't replace those. And if you do, you want to standardize, fine. There's some benefit of that. But a lot of companies 
companies have three of everything already. And a lot of companies have set up different groups in the organizations to try to innovate or do agile. So start small and then take those current tools and get a customer and get some data and start delivering values every, every week and have that tool, that team work together and, and try to make their customers successful and only focus on the customers have the, and have, be relentless on that. Have your data engineers be empowered to organize the data, use the tool of their choice if they like to code in Python or like to write SQL or use their favorite ETL tool, let, me, let them do that. And your data scientists and all of them are, all, are aligned and working to make the customer successful in a short cycle time. And have that group then work for six months or a year and start delivering real value. And then people will start to believe that this is a better way to work in an organization. And so we're on a try it, see it, have it work instead of the big bang, you've got to make a massive transformation to data ops today. And that's the way we want to help people do it by kind of showing and doing and starting small, starting cheap, as opposed to you know selling multi-million dollar pieces of software. And it's a very kind of practical approach. It's not a VC, we're going to grow big and, you know, grow 500% a year. We're growing, you know, we grew 100% last year. We're growing probably 50 or 100% this year. But it's a slow and gradual way that we're going to try to help, you know, it, make a little dent in the world and get these analytic teams to stop stop working in, in such a challenging way and, and really improve their life. And, and hopefully five years from now, it's going to be more accepted And because, yeah, when I used to be a software engineering manager in 1999, I thought it was pretty hot shit that I could get my, my team to ship software every three months. And now if I would go out and try to get a software engineering ma- manager and say I could get my team to ship, ship software every three months, I would not get a job because people would think three months is just way, way too slow. And that change in the world's attitude of, of how you deliver value fast, how you iterate and improve, how you innovate and the set of ideas behind that are that are encapsulated in you know DevOps and manuf- lean manufacturing and, and agile. I think need to become more accepted in in the data and analytics world, and, and they're starting to. Like if you look at, like I would love to get Netflix as a customer, but Netflix is awesome. Like they've got a bunch of open source. They build all their own tools. They're like far ahead of of a lot of companies are because data is their business, and empowering people to make create ideas from that data is fundamental to their growth. And very non technical people. People use that use that data as well, and so I think that's where we want to go. Where people are, lots of people in the organization are empowered to, to create uh, artifacts from that data. They're empowered to share those widely in the organization, reuse those in the organization, and they can be changed quickly and deliver high quality data. That's the sort of vision that we're, we're trying to do, and data ops is, is is part of that, but not obviously not the whole thing. Yeah, so you certainly don't have to sell me on the the non-venture-backed model of what you're doing. I mean, I've been paying attention to indie hackers for a long time, and you know, my business is bootstrapped. And you know, if it's bootstrapped, then you can go more slowly with customers and with any aspect of your business. You understand the inputs and the outputs much more easily when you you're bootstrapped. And also, the economics of a SaaS business are such that you really don't need. You know, you can have very high margins um, operationally. You know, you you pay an upfront expense for writing the code and developing the UIs and so on, and it's a one-time fixed cost. And it's like building a building that then replicates itself at at very low marginal costs. And and it's it's a it's a great business model to build a SaaS business, even if it's a CMS that only a hundred different enterprises 
use and you know they pay you a couple thousand dollars a year like can be very good business and i've i've seen on indie hackers a number of different cmss and marketing tools and apis that seem narrow but they're good businesses but okay but all that said i really want to understand the people who, you know you got 4 million dollars in, in annual revenue which is fantastic so we've we've talked about some different concepts here that that i can get behind data ops wise we've talked a lot about testing a little bit about version control a little bit about tool agnosticism i think there's some other elements of data ops that that we haven't really gotten into but I want to know specifically what kinds of tooling are you building into Data Kitchen? When somebody becomes a Data Kitchen customer, what are they saying? Like, this tool gives me the ability to do X more easily. Yeah. So what we try to, our ideal customer profile is a buyer who's got this, is squeezed between their business customer who's demanding high quality data and insight rapidly. And and they're failing at it, right? They're sort of getting beat up by their business customer. And then they really want to have, they've got, they hired a bunch of smart. And then by the way, sorry to interrupt you. That would be like the VP of marketing. The VP of marketing is breathing down my neck to get these reports faster. And it's not happening and they're upset yeah, at yeah. the VP of marketing. They want a segmentation. They want the reports. And last week you had a major data error and you had to, he looked bad in the reports he was giving to his boss. And, you know, you've got a VP of sales and you've got some operational people. You've got, a, you know, you're a data organization and you're, you're failing to both deliver high quality recurring insight to your customer because of ongoing data errors. And you're not realizing what you really want to do with your team, which is create and innovate. And that's our ideal customer because, and we don't particularly care. We, you know, we're, we're a small company. We don't, you know, we've got container orchestration system. You know, we've got some uh, open source APIs where you can plug in all these different tools. So like we try to get people who have, have Tableau, try to get people who are on Amazon or have a certain set of databases have a certain set of ETL tools that we've already that we've already integrated with but in general people you know we're trying to get people who feel that pain pretty palpably that I want to innovate and I can't and man I'm looking bad in front of my customer and and I have a CDO role and I can't sit with the other CXOs and feel you know cool <laughs> basically because I'm like I'm having all these embarrassing production problems or like it takes me 3 months to update a database and that's the kind of who palpably feel that they're not innovating and delivering value. And what we try to, to, to do is work with them and say, look, let's start small. Let's not replace everything. Let's take a subset of your customers, a subset of your data, a small team and a set of tools, and we'll start iterating quickly. And once that happens, then they start to customers say, oh, I'm starting to get new things every week from this team. I want to work with that team. Oh, I'm starting to get what and the, there's the trust issues between quote IT or the data science and engineers and the and the business customers break down. They start communicating, they start having their weekly scrums, they start trusting each other. And then when the development team says, you know what, these next two weeks, 80% of the work I want to do on some governments, governance and documentation, and I want to refactor these three things, then the, the person says, Yeah, that makes sense. I can see how that's going to help me, the business customer. And you get a good relationship going. And once that's repaired, the sort of us versus them, they, you know, the rolling of the eyes of the business customer is repaired in a small way, then it can, the entire organization can be transformed because these are people, right? And, and you need to have the people work together in a different way. And not all organizations are like this. It's not all Hatfields and McCoys between the business customer and the, and the data analyst. And I, you know, I try to sell a bit in, in, in extreme. There's lots of companies that, that are really work, working well, but 
that's how we work. And, and our success has come from the end business customer, that VP of marketing saying, I have a data set I can trust and I can try some stuff out and I trust my team that's going to be able to, to help and support me. And I'm, I'm looking good because of it. And the chief data officer, chief analytic officer, head of analytics, head of data science, whatever their, you know, the terms are, is then feeling empowered and wanting to try some things. And the conversations are less about, oh, we had a massive data error last week and more about, hey, what about this new data set? And hey, can I, you know, I heard about this way of looking at data with this tool. I want to try that out. And that's when things, from our perspective, people are starting to really see the value and they become very hooked on our, on our product because it becomes easier to innovate and, and you've got just less stress. And is that because it's good for communicating? Like, should I think of it like a Slack or a sauna kind of tool? No, no, not not at all. Actually, people use Jira. You know, we, we like phone calls. What it really is, is a way to orchestrate. So if you take the typical value chain in analytics, you know, the data engineering part, which could be code or ETL or Airflow or whatever tool and the data science work, the data science tools, which there's a lot could be SAS or Python and then visualization tools. We plug those tools all plug into their our platform. And what we do in the operational sense is we inject the code that those tools take. We run that code and then we pull out test information from that to make sure while it's running that it's correct. And so from a production standpoint, you know, those, those are our stands, the ETL, those are the parts of the factory floor that the data flows through that we're running and monitoring. And so we orchestrate all that in a directed graph. You know, we do it across clusters of machines. You know, we use Docker, we use APIs, we even, you know, bundled some DevOps tools working SSH into different machines and just pl- lay the lay the code on the machine and run it from the command line. And we also do some, some DevOps stuff to make sure the the environment is set up to do that. And then the second part of what our what our tool does is we help deploy code into production. So we have an overarching, this overarching thing that runs all these systems. We use a lot of food metaphors, like a lot of tools. So we have this recipe that has that we've decorated with tests and, and we allow people to kind of a little different than software development. The creating of your dev environment is actually a little bit harder in the analytics world because You've got these really complicated directed graphs that have like hundreds and hundreds of nodes and you want to run part of them and you want to have a certain subset of test data. And then, you you know, the, the, you want to have the right version of the Python library. So we kind of have wizards and, and tools to help create the dev environment quickly. And that's actually a surprisingly hard problem that a lot of companies have. A lot of companies are doing they have either very rigid, here's the development environment, everyone has to use it, or they're doing stuff on production and hacking. You know, the first thing when you go into a software engineer course is you set up your dev box and then you work to, you, you run the unit tests and then you make a change and you deploy a simple bug fix into production. And that's like how, that's your first week in any software engineering job. And that's like, that's almost impossible to do in a lot of organizations if you're on a, a data science or data engineering organization to make a change that couples across all these systems and deploy it. So we're trying to make it easy to do a development environment and then easy to make a change, see if that's broken anything by running all your tests, having uh, test data management, and then deploying it into production. And so that idea of orchestration of, of what happens in production, you know, and a lot of analytic, you know, we're starting to use the word continuous integration and deployment. I've shied away from it for a couple of years because nobody knows what it is in the data really? analytics world. Yeah. They're really? like, oh, okay. They know about deployment. What deployment for a lot of companies is I have a dev database 
And then there's a literally a Word document that's 10 pages long that talks about, okay, I get the code from this file system, or they might use Git, or they might have to get it from some other database. And then here's how I push that code into my, my UAT box to do testing. And then here's how I push it into production. And so deployment is, is really pretty archaic at a lot of companies. And that's why it does take five or six months to deploy anything. I think I'm getting this. And I know we're, we're basically out of time, but just a couple more things. Yeah, like yeah. in preparing for the show, like I, I took a look at the product. I, I looked at some videos online and obviously Nick connected us and, and I trust his judgment. But frankly, I didn't really understand what the product was doing. But now this is a challenge for a lot of software companies, but it, like explaining what their product actually does. But I think I'm hearing it from you now, and, and you can tell me if, if I'm wrong. But it sounds like, so continuous integration, continuous deployment, it's a little bit easier to understand relative to what you have to do for data. Because in continuous delivery for just software, it's like a, a single pipeline. It's like a Trello board. You know, you've got uh, dev, test, like some sort of staging environment, you've got prod, you've got just these stages. And it's just like, this is where certain pieces of code is running. With data ops, it may be a wider variety of dimensions. It's not just like one track that your code is moving along. It's like you've got different versions of models, you've got different data sets, you've got a wider array of environments that things can run. It's more multi-dimensional. But the thing that you would like to be able to sell this product on the dimension of is this is like continuous delivery. This is like continuous integration, but you don't want to use those words because the people that you're selling this to don't know what those words mean. Yeah, that's the challenge. Yeah, that's the marketing challenge, right? Because like, yeah, part of our product's sort of like Jenkins. Part of our product's it's like Jenkins, a, right. A, 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 part of our product's like a test suite. Part of our problem, our product is an orchestration tool like Control-M or even like Airflow. And part of our product is a way for you to, to simplify creating a development environment that we call a kitchen. And all those things we've built because we've had to, because of been doing it for 15 years, because of these set of beliefs. And so that's where also why... Yeah, it's, it's great that we're $4 million in recurring revenue, but it, it's a struggle to express simply the varied value propositions and, and how we do it. And, and one of the things that I'm trying to do is, is say that data ops is a thing. And definitionally, this is what data ops is. It's a thing you should do. And yeah, you can buy our product, but you know what? You could probably do Jenkins and Airflow and, and write your own test suite and, and have a bunch of scripts and get, get data ops. And that, that's cool, honestly. If people start doing data ops and they, they roll it themselves, I'm, I'm happy with that. Because my goal is to make that the, date, the set of ideas behind data ops happen in the world and the company's a vehicle to do it. And, you know, I'd like people to buy our software, but if they don't, they, they can. There's lots of other. And Nick Schrock has got an, another idea that's very data opsy. And I think there's other companies that are doing it. And we're starting to get some analyst coverage. And even Gartner's put it at the very toe of their hype curve, which is, believe me, exciting in a marketing sense. <laughs> so people are starting to talk about it. But, you know, it's, it's nowhere near, any, you know, being a big thing. But I just want it to be a little thing for it, And then we can go from there. Chris Berg, it's been great talking to you. I, I understand your product better now. Look, I hear the marketing problem. I, I totally hear it. Like that is not straightforward. And I I like the data ops 
strategy of like, you know, starting with a, a more abstract movement and, you know, as a, I think that'll build trust and also it will lead to some sales. The interesting product, interesting to hear an, a story of a bootstrapped company. So I, I appreciate you coming on the show. All right. Yeah. Thank you for your time and appreciate the opportunity. Wow. 